My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. It is my joy to share with you uh, what God has been teaching me through this passage um, this past week. It's quite amazing to see how much growth and development that happens from the time a baby is born until they become a two-year-old toddler. And one really fun thing to do is go back through the pictures and see how much your baby's face changes. And when my son Isaiah was born, it was common to discuss who he looks like. Friends, family, coworkers would all chime in as to who Isaiah takes after. Some would say that he looks exactly like his mother. Some would say that he looks exactly like me. And others would, of course, give the diplomatic answer. He's a perfect 50-50 blend. Sometimes people would point to specific features that Isaiah shares with us. Isaiah has his mother's eyes. Isaiah shares his dad's unique cowlick, just kind of this weird hair thing in the back. If you're a hairdresser, please find me, tell me how to address this situation back here. Hairs, oh, brilliant. And it's not just the appearances that the child takes on. There are various behaviors and speech patterns that the child will imitate. And of course, as the child grows, they take on a personality of their own and is further shaped by teachers, peers, and society. So who do you take after? Now, it might be fun to discuss who you physically take after, but that's not what I'm asking about here. I'm asking about your life. We were all created in the image of God. We were created by God and for God. We were created to know him. We were created to be his representatives and be good stewards of this earth. We were created to worship, serve, and obey God with all that we are. And the more that we align with our purpose, the more we image God and thus experience life as God intended. But I confess my heart tends not to worship the creator, but created things, Instead of being a steward of the things of earth, I often become a servant to the things of earth. Psalm 115 was quoted a few weeks ago and teaches that we will resemble what we worship. And while created things are indeed good and made for our enjoyment, they were never meant to be ultimate things. And when good things become ultimate things in our lives... They become dull and lifeless idols, which we ourselves will begin to resemble. And it's not just the preoccupation with the love of the world that draws us away from life in God. As we heard two weeks ago, we are living in the last hours. These are the end times where there are deceivers, false teachers, and antichrist dispositions that are trying to pull us away from abiding in Christ. And to quote Pastor Jeremy, we are being tempted to skip our crosses, tempted to skirt our obedience to the Father, and tempted to disregard the way of meekness in search of power. As we live in these end times in the midst of all these temptations and deceivers, how can we stay the course in worshiping and imaging the living God. 
How can we abide in Christ amid the pull of this world to abandon Christ? Our text today, 1 John 2:28 through 3:10, will teach us three ways we can abide as children of God in these last days. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are present to us this morning and that you speak to us through your word. Would you open up our ears to hear your voice this morning? Would you open up our minds to understand your word? And would you till our hearts that your word might be planted in good soil that bears much fruit? To your glory, for your glory in your name's sake. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how can we abide as children of God in these last days? First, we can abide by living in the hope of Christ's return. Living in the hope of Christ's return. Let's look at our passage together, starting at 228 through 3, chapter 3, verse 3. And now, dear children, continue in him, that's our word, abide, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See how great the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. In the previous verses, John has written on how the love of the world, false teachers, and antichrists are all trying to pull us away from life in God. And so he begins this next section with an exhortation. Continue in Christ. Abide in Christ. And we see that abiding in Christ leads to assurance in Christ. Continuing in Christ leads to confidence in his appearing. And John completes his thought about standing before God by reflecting on the righteous character of God. And that those who belong to God live in accordance with the character of God. It's important to note here that we do not live righteous lives in order to earn standing or position with God. But rather, our new birth in God leads us to new life and new actions that reflect his nature. John is teaching us that God's children resemble God's righteous character because they have been born of him. And while we are positionally children of God, our full participation in God's nature has not yet been revealed. We are still in process of fully being redeemed. 
And John tells us that when Christ appears, we will become like him. And the barrier of sin will be no more. And our position and our participation will be in full alignment. Our great hope is that there is a time coming when we will be with Christ and we will be like Christ. And this hope causes us to purify ourselves. And purity here is not a ritual religious activity. Purity is transformation into the likeness of Christ. Will the revealing of Christ lead to your confidence and joy? Or will the revealing of Christ lead to hiding and shame? Are you ready? Am I ready? How are we orienting our days? Is it centered around Christ and his kingdom? Or is it centered around something else? If we were to trace the path and patterns and decisions of our lives, what trajectory are we on? What might it look like to abide living in the hope of Christ's return? I love how Eugene Peterson unpacks what hope looks like in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, Discipleship in an Instant Society. Great title. Hoping does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It is an imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand that God put into effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That is not hoping in God, but bullying God. I pray to God, my life a prayer, and wait for what he'll say and do. My life's on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. The return of Christ is a call to abide in hope. This hope gives us confidence to live out our lives and step with God's plans and desires. This hope allows us to surrender ourselves to his purposes, knowing that one day we can worship and follow Jesus without the barrier of sin and be in Jesus' presence unashamed. And this surrendering of ourselves to God's plan doesn't have to be this huge, dramatic action. Surrendering ourselves to God is attending to what God has called you to and to do it faithfully. To abide in the hope of Christ's return is about being attentive to God's presence and movement and to watch, wait, pray, and follow. And one practice that you can do each day to help you abide in the hope 
of Christ's return is to make it a habit to practice St. Ignatius's discipline of the prayer of examine. And this is a way to prayerfully review your day. As you wind down your evening, find a quiet place to pray. Pause and consider where you have seen God's presence throughout your day. Also, consider where you have felt distant from God throughout the day. Take time to give thanks, confess, and resolve to live the next day walking in step with God. So how can we abide as children of God in these last days? First, we abide by living in the hope of Christ's return. Second, we abide by living in the power of Christ's redemption. We live in the power of Christ's redemption. Let's continue in on our passage. Verse 4. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. First of all, ouch. (laughs) Maybe if we saw John penning this letter today, we would want him to soften his delivery a bit. You know, John, you might want to choose some other words. You know, the, the children of the devil language is a bit harsh. Maybe find another way to say it. Makes me feel uncomfortable. But John is writing this letter to the church that is being tempted to love the things of this world more than God and being infiltrated by false teachers. And in view of these dark times, John wants to unmask sin for what it is. He wants to point to the power of Christ to conquer sin. And he wants to show that those who belong to Christ renounce the way of sin and embrace the way of righteousness. So if our first half of our passage today was an exposition on how to live in light of Christ's second coming, the second half focuses on how we ought to live in light of Christ's first coming. And John begins by unmasking the nature of sin. We see that everyone who sins breaks God's law. And John follows up with a definition. Sin is lawlessness. And while there are other nuances and definitions of sin throughout the scriptures, the one John hones in on here 
is that sin is rebellion towards God. And that is why in verse 8, John writes that the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. The devil started his infamous career in his proud rebellion against God. And the devil is always depicted as being hostile towards God, trying to overthrow the purposes of God and working towards the ruin of humanity. Next, John points to the power of Christ to conquer sin. We see that Jesus appeared to take away our sins. I can't help but think of John the Baptist's declaration when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the great exchange. Jesus, the one who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We who once stood condemned now receive the declaration of not guilty. We who were once far off from God have been brought near. We who were dead in our sins have now been made alive. We who once deserved wrath and judgment have received mercy and grace. What's more is that Jesus' work of redemption is not only at work on a personal level, but also on a cosmic level. In the second half of verse 8, the reason Jesus appears is to destroy the works of the devil. And this word destroy has the idea of conquering or overthrowing. Jesus overthrows the kingdom of darkness and ushers in his kingdom of light. So the conclusion that John draws from unmasking sin for what it is and pointing to the power of Christ to conquer sin is that those who belong to Christ walk with Christ. He writes that those who are born of God do not continue in sin and cannot go on sinning. And John is not saying these things to make people feel shame or guilt, but rather to be on alert. In verse 7, John addresses his readers as dear children and calls them to be on their guard. And in verse 10, we see that the test of being righteous is doing works of righteousness and loving our neighbor. Now, this is not to say that a true Christian now is incapable of sinning. John is not speaking of sin in terms of individual events. After all, John wrote in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And in chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his truth is not in us. What John is getting at here is that the one who is born of God does not and cannot continue in the path of active rebellion against God. Of course, we are prone to wander, but those who are born of God are also open to receiving course correction. We're open to receiving the forgiveness of God. There's a desire to be near God. There's a desire to walk with God. 
So how can we abide in the power of Christ's redemption? We look to Jesus, our Redeemer. We can be confident that just as Jesus has overthrown sin and the work, works of the devil, that that same power is at work in us. Therefore, we can abide by keeping short accounts with God. We can abide by learning to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We can abide by recognizing acts and patterns that are contrary to the way of Christ and turn away from those paths that lead to death. We can abide by loving our neighbors well. And the good news is that it's never too late. You're never too far gone to receive the grace and mercy of God. 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. One way that you could put into practice abiding in the power of Christ's redemption is to utilize this acronym HALT, H-A-L-T. Oftentimes, bad decisions and patterns are bred when we are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. And these conveniently make up the acronym HALT. And whenever you find yourself in any of these states, take a moment to pause. Stop yourself and invite Jesus to meet you where you are and to lead you in a manner that reflects who he is. Having a two-year-old toddler, I often find myself in the state of tiredness and therefore with a shorter fuse. And my wife graciously says, hey, Paul, calm down, calm down. Voice of the Holy Spirit sometimes. It's very good. And I tried to put this into practice this week with varied success. And when I noticed my frustration mounting, I took a deep breath and just took a moment to pause. Jesus, will you meet me in this moment to, to, to demonstrate your love and your patience? How can we abide as children of God in these last days? First, we abide by living in the hope of Christ's return. Second, we abide by living in the power of Christ's redemption. And third, we abide by living in the love of Christ. We abide by living in the love of Christ. We're going to go back to chapter 3, verse 1. Such a great verse demands another look. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. As we live in between the first and second coming, the great truth that can sustain and satisfy our deepest longings is to know the love of God and know our identity as children of God. John, after describing how those born of God resemble God's righteous character, launches into this outburst of wonder. And our English translations use various expressions like, see what kind, see how great, or behold what manner. 
And it is an invitation to marvel at the love of God. And John highlights how this love from divine origins is a love that is active and for our good. One commentator writes, God loves the sinner not because he is drawn to him by his lovableness, but because in spite of man's unloveliness, God set his mind and will on seeking man's highest good. This is what is amazing about God's love. And God in his grace through Jesus' work of redemption has made a way for sinful humanity not only to be forgiven, but adopted into the family of God. And this is not simply a title, but a transformative reality and relationship. And the child of God is unknown by the world, that is, the world that is the hostile order that stands in opposition to God, because the world does not know or recognize who God is. Our primary identity in this life is bound up in who God has called us to be, his dearly loved children. So how can we abide in the love of Christ? We take time to consider, marvel, and wonder that we are loved by God and that we belong to God. And as we continue to worship and give thanks for the love of God in Christ, you will find your heart increased for its love for God and your capacity to love others. Part of my bedtime routine with my son is to sing the hymn, Jesus Loves Me. Do you know it? Yeah. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Two precious truths. I am loved by Jesus. In all my mess, I'm loved by Jesus. And I belong to Jesus. Perhaps you can sing this hymn on your way to work or as you go to bed at night this week to remind yourselves of these great truths. Friends, as we look to Jesus' return, we can abide in him with great hope and anticipation. And so we can attend faithfully to what he has called us to do. And as we look to Christ's redeeming work, we can abide in Christ with confidence that his power is at work in us and we can learn to say no to sin and yes to walking in righteousness. And we can abide in God's great love in the posture of worship and wonder, knowing that we are loved by Jesus and that we belong to him. One tangible way that we can give thanks for Jesus' work of redemption and anticipate the return of Jesus is at the table of communion. We don't come to this table because we've earned it or because we deserve it. 
we come to the table to remember and give thanks that Jesus has made a way for humanity to be restored into relationship with God. This is both the table of grace and the table of promise. We eat this bread and we drink this cup in celebration of God's faithfulness. But in this act, we also look forward to the day when we see him face to face, and we will be fully transformed when we'll finally be able to worship God as he deserves. As you receive from the table this morning, celebrate God's grace to you in the present, but also look forward to the grace that will one day be yours. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So at this time, I invite you to open the first lid of your communion cup and take the wafer, the body of Christ given for you. When you're ready, let's open the second lid together, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let us drink with thanksgiving.